Hi, everyone. Thanks for stopping by our table of disappointment. This is How They Got Away, the show where we discuss the unsatisfying endings to your favorite unsolved or unpunished true crime and corporate greed stories. I'm your host for today, Annalise. I'm here with my co-host. Kelsey's here today. And our guest. Singular. It's Stephanie, the one, the singular. The singularity. Anna has left us for (laughs) North Carolina. She's too cool for us. She realized that she could do better. You know, honestly, (laughs) I get it. Today, I bring you an old case. And when I say old, I mean like 17th century old. Oh, that's old. It is. (laughs) A couple of years ago, Bailey Sarian covered a story on a female poisoner. A little-known woman named Julia Tofana. And so if you're a Bailey fan, you know that every so often she references Aqua Tofana. And so, you know, I want to do my own research. I don't really remember much of the story anymore. So I wanted to do a bit of a deep dive. And that is what I have for you today. I'm not saying that I like female poisoners. Because murder is bad. But I am saying... That is a stone cold way to kill a person, especially as we, as most of them, I don't know the particular story you're going to tell us today, Annalise, but oftentimes they're caretakers of the individuals. And that is just another level of fuck you. I'm going to sit here and poison you slowly while I pretend to care about you. That is next level. I find it fascinating is what I should say. Mm-hmm. I see. I was just thinking there's like women with swords and women with poison. And then there's women with poison swords. It like, it it scratches like a little, a little itch in the, in the brain. We do love women being empowered in a time when they are not allowed to have power. We do love to see women just trying to close that murder gap. And I feel comfortable joking about this because of how old this is. Like, no one who was affected by this is alive anymore. So I feel good making little jokes about this. But before we get too far into it, I want to give a lot of credit to this guy, Mike Dash, who wrote two of the sources that I drew from most heavily. He has this, like incredible award-winning blog mike-history.com and he does a deep dive into a bunch of different historical stories highly recommend you check him out i also found he responds to the comments a lot and he gave such good information in the comments as well people would ask for like additional information on different parts and he like provided we love to see somebody positively engaging with their audience for the purpose of education like we just kind of love that It was incredible. This is like a huge long essay. And then he'd write like little like mini paragraph essays in the comments to like give people more information. And it was great. So as I said, I'm going to take us back to the 17th century, specifically Italy. And so just to give you an idea, this is like 1630s to 1650s when most of this is happening. The context and the time period that this falls in is between the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period. So during this time, the Thirty Years' War was raging in Europe. Pilgrims in the Mayflower had touched down in America. The Ming Dynasty fell in China, and climate change in the form of a Little Ice Age had led to increased disease and hunger. So as you can imagine, this is not a great time in history, particularly to be a woman. (laughs) Could be worse. Could be the Black Plague. Could be... When when you said sixteen, well, there are plagues going around during this time too. So when you said sixteen fifties Italy, I was like, how close was that to the Black Plague? And I looked it up. It's actually like three hundred years beforehand, so it's much further back than I thought. But I mean, back then things moved so slowly. It might as well have been twenty years ago. I thought Stephanie was processing for a second, so I was going to give her. I am sorry. I am always processing. Am I always saying words? Uh, debatable. I was just thinking about the passage of time. Strange, the passage Mm. of time. Yeah, and the history of being a lady. 
Oh, shoot. This is, like, right in the witch trial times, too, isn't it? <laughs> well, the Mayflower did just touch down, so, you know. <laughs> it's definitely an interesting time. It's also, I mean, Thirty Years' War is, like, Catholicism and Protestants, like, fighting it out. And so it's that time period. So to bring us to our story, there's very little known about the life of our main character. Um, Julia Manjardi is her actual name. Um, she's thought to have been born in Palermo, Sicily in 1581, but there is some contention with that date. Um, someone said, a couple of sources said 1620. I don't think so. I think 1620 is too late for the timeline of the rest of this story. So we're going to stick with um, 1581. Some speculate. At least the historian. <laughs> it's really like, they're like 1620. And I was like going through the timeline of this and then the other events we know in her life. And I'm like, ah, I don't. <laughs> she goes through You're like. telling me. It just like does not fit very well. So. And I mean, it's like maybe somebody was writing these down, but like it was on a piece of paper in a church that is probably not around today. If like, sure. there's no real records, it's kind of like, well, this one text referenced this other text that we cannot find that apparently said this. And there's also a lot of, like, a hundred years later, this person did some, like, research going around and talking to people and getting some kind of record. But, like, how much is that glorified gossip? Because this was a huge case once it was over. And I can imagine, like, a couple of decades through the gossip mill and things get a little um, dramatized. That's why, like, firsthand accounts being, uh, or not even, just, like, people who were alive during the time counted as a primary source for history is so interesting to me because like you can just say anything you can say anything and it'll be taken as pretty much fact because you were there like that does not mean that you're telling the truth no i'm thinking of the chris rock slap incident and just like every person and their mom was interviewed about that and somehow they all came away with trauma man by the time this releases that will be entirely irrelevant Sorry. it's kind of irrelevant now it's, it is irrelevant it's now. entirely relevant now but it, it'll be like like it'll be a negative dip <laughs> by the time god some speculate that Julia got the last name Tofana by taking her mother's first name and using it as her last name, which I guess was a common practice in Italy at the time. Some believe that her mother was actually Tofania um, Diadamo, another female poisoner who poisoned her husband and was executed July 1633. So wait, they say her mom was also a convicted poisoner. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if maybe somebody got some marriage advice. I don't know where this is going, but I'm going to guess somebody got some not-so-great marriage advice. So just to give you an idea also about um, severity for this punishment, the execution of uh, Tefania Diadamo was likely severe due to the crime. She was likely hanged, drawn, quartered, or bound and covered in a burlap sap, which would have been thrown from the bishop's palace into the streets. So that's real brutal. But one thing I kind of not appreciate, appreciate's the wrong word, but it, there's not really another word for it uh, that's better, but the drama of punishments back then, like there's a reason that cruel and unusual punishment is disallowed in America today, because like literally they in Europe they would have you like and you know what we're going to kill you in front of your mom because fuck you execution today with the medication is also still cruel and unusual and sometimes it's fucked up and you just are dying a slow paralyzed death cuz it doesn't work the first time yes and i'm not saying it's we are not still but something, the drama of being like, I'm going to put you in a sack, and then I'm going to beat you in the sack, and then I'm going to take that sack, and I'm going to throw it off the balcony of the bishop's house, because you've done an injustice. Like the, there's a level the of irony here. Not the actual pain and cruelty of Yeah, the yeah, yeah. 
No, that makes sense. The one that gets me is when you crush people with rocks. Stoning. You slowly stack them. Yeah. Yep. So, of course, both of these events would have been public viewing. Because, you know, the past. I mean, what else do you do on a Saturday in 1650s Italy? It's not like you're going to watch TV. You're going to watch the game. What? It's, well, we could go watch Samuel ride around on his donkey for a bit. Mm Mm-hmm. Or I guess we could go watch an execution. I mean, I'd be down for an execution. Would you be down for an execution? Well, I don't got anything else going on. And people question why true crime is popular right now. It's not just popular now. Um, it's just we've always been interested in the weird and fucked. <laughs> That's just part of human nature. And it's never not been a part of human nature. It's just always taken different forms. Mm-hmm. That said, I would not go and view an execution now. I would not do that. That is not my vibe. No, I wouldn't either. Gore is not for me. Thank you. I'm good. But moving on. Some theorize that Tofania Diadama was the original inventor of Aqua Tofana, the poison that we will be talking about today, and that she had trafficked the poison along with her assistant, um, Francesca Lasarda. Lasarda had been executed a year prior in February 1632 after it was discovered that she had killed someone after three days of feeding them the poison. So number one, it's the 1650s. How do you go about proving the poisoning? Unless you physically see someone put it in the glass, how do you prove, number one, that it's in there, and number two, that they did it? And also, the... Since you're talking about the mom and there was that discussion about the difference between dates earlier, I wonder if the confusion is that it started with the mom and maybe that's why there were earlier dates that got mixed in here. I also question um, whether uh, Tofaria Diadamo is actually her mother or if she was a client or an associate of um, Julia. She was her work mom. Those who believe that uh, Julia is, in fact, um, Tofania Diadamo's daughter, um, believe other women involved with Diadamo and Lasarda's operation fled to Rome, where they joined a group led by Julia Tofana. Um, I don't know if, again, I don't know if I believe that there was another group that came to join Julia, because as we talk, it really sounds like Julia builds a group together. And that is really what we're going to talk about the most is that this group comes together with a goal of, well, helping women escape their marriages. Now I'm not you know, saying. There's a lot of problems, but we love to see women supporting women. I'm not saying what they did was right, but I am saying what other choice did they have? So I'm sure. All of us can guess that women's lives were not the greatest in the 17th century. Um, Women's rights wasn't really a concept. (laughs) What? (gasps) You don't say. To give some context. During the Renaissance period, women's marriages were arranged, often without their say, and due to the strictness of Catholicism, divorce was absolutely out of the question. Women were, for all intents and purposes, objects of trade. Age of consent for women at the time would have been 12 years old, 14 for men. Although most women in the 1600s, according to records, married in their late teens or 20s, but that is a caveat, an average of late teens and 20s. There were plenty of girls getting married 12 and above. Age gaps As I understand also... it, younger marriages were more common in the nobility, right? I will, yeah, and uh, nobility, people with titles, those in the upper echelon trying to move up the social hierarchy. People who had shit to lock down. I mean, you also got to remember that people didn't live as long, too. So there is... A little bit of wiggle room with that, but it is odd to imagine a 12-year-old getting buried, even though it still happens today in places. But anyway. Thanks. I hate it. I hate it. 
age gaps were quite common at the time. So differences of up to and beyond 10 years were acceptable and not unheard of. I mean, I had neighbors who were about 15 years apart, but they didn't meet until they were both in their 30s and 40s. So it's a little bit at that point, 15 years isn't as big of a deal. We are going to talk about one person in this who had a husband that was 30 years older than her. Ooh. Okay. And given the great gender equality of the time period, I'm sure it worked out. I'm I'm positive it was true love. Yeah. Speaking of which, husbands had complete control over their wives' lives and could beat them as a, without any form of punishment. It was within the law. I was just going to ask, is this the era of the law of coverture? I don't know what that is. Oh, sorry. The law of coverture is like women are basically held by one man and then they're held by another man, like the dad and then the the husband. And the man just sort of like any like he gets the laws and then they sort of just trickle down onto her, basically. Like she doesn't own property. He owns property, but she gets to be in the property. I would say definitely. In fact, that's where giving the bride away came from, because it was an exchange of property. Mm-hmm. Which is, as I said, objects of trade, so yeah. Wahoo. I didn't explain coverture well, but yeah, it's just she's covered by the man. Husbands had complete control over their wives' lives and could beat them without any form of punishment. It was within the law that they could use limited, air quotes, violence on their wives in order to correct their behavior. Trevor Dean, who wrote an article about how domestic violence was likely even higher in the Renaissance than we already estimate, gives this insane example about a man who brought his wife to court after breaking her arm and said, can't a husband beat his wife? Apparently not believing that he should be brought to court for what he thought was, you know, a legal incident. Given the medical technology of the time period, that is a condemning injury. I mean, obviously, domestic violence is always bad, but it's like, that is horrific. It's horrific that he thought he should be allowed to do it. And it's like the possible physical repercussions that that could have had for her long term. If she didn't get an infection and die of sepsis. Insane. Here's another example for perspective. Sexual violence, such as rape, which is typically seen as a female victim crime, although it is not always, was seen as a minor crime, except in the case of children. They put sexual violence below violent speech and robbery. Often rapists would escape punishment entirely. I was going to say, I was surprised that it was even considered a crime, unless it was somebody raping somebody else's wife or daughter who did not quote unquote own them because at that point you're ruining somebody's goods in the eyes of the law at the time but then they would blame the wife or daughter because then yeah it's obviously her fault that she got raped but here's the thing when i say violent speech i mean just threatening someone they put (laughs) raping someone below threatening someone (laughs) i mean again i'm shocked it was even considered a crime at all back then just Especially with their attitudes towards domestic violence, I figured it was kind of a matter of course. We have such low expectations. <laughs> the bar is on I'm the floor. Say, y'all, y'all should take the time to do like an English major course on like novels of the seventeen, maybe eighteen hundreds, um, because it's like men fuck around, have sex, ruin a woman. The woman has a baby, dies immediately because she can't have a baby and live because she was unwed. But then that baby runs around and then that guy's legal son is like, oh, damn, that's a hot th- that baby grew up to be a hot lady. I'm going to have sex with that lady. But he doesn't know they're step siblings. And then they both die tragically because they fell in love and they were step siblings. And there's like a whole it's like a whole saga of like novels from that time period being like there is a problem with men fucking around with unwed women because then you have like step siblings running half around. siblings half siblings. I am so sorry. I am a fool. I am tired. Death bro. How could you not know step sibling? 
But yeah, there's one famous example called The Power of Sympathy. I'm getting on a huge tangent, but that was like those novels were like vaguely sympathetic to the women. They were like these women were ruined and then it led to like ultimate tragedy and it kind of blames the men. But like, nah, nah. He, he never suffers the consequence. It's always like woman, maybe his son, woman. Well, back to marriages. As I mentioned before, divorce was not an option. So the only way out was for your spouse to die. Once a woman was a widower, they could manage their deceased husband's lands. This was one of the only ways that women could have any kind of like independent power. So you can see how a woman caught in an abusive, miserable marriage um, might get the idea that poisoning someone's husband or their husband is a good idea. This is where Julia Tapano's services come into play. So, as I mentioned before, Julia was not alone. So, what was this poisoning ring? How did it work? And who operated it? Julia Tofana sold cosmetics through southern Italy, including Palermo, Naples, and Rome. Although some had theorized that um, Diodamo, her supposed mother, had invented Aqua Tofana, most attribute its creation to Julia. Her business became a fantastic cover. Women who would come to her would come for the disguised aquatofana. Initially, it was disguised as a powdered makeup that could be hidden among women's other cosmetic products. Later, the poison was put in vials that touted the image of St. Nicholas of Bari, who is St. Saint- Nicholas as in Santa Claus. Um- <laughs> Santa, for this year, for Christmas this year, I would like a dead husband. <laughs> dead husband and all his property if you don't mind i've been good this year and so these bottles claim to be like a healing ointment and that was the cover then and i think it's interesting that it went as a disguise of makeup because makeup often contains basically poisons and toxins anyway so you probably could have just poisoned people with your makeup straight you know it's kind of really cute and I'm almost sad it's a poison, but, like, you know what? Go off. Have a cute little St. Nick on your poison vial. Like, I know murder, we all stand against murder. It's a pretty easy stance. But the more you talk about this lady, I'm like, she's a small business owner. She's possibly an inventor. She made these cute little bottles. She's supporting women getting out of bad marriages and getting into independence. She is kind of iconic. Like, let's be honest. I also think it's interesting that it was St. Nicholas, because it looks like he was the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, Children, brewers, pawnbrokers, and students. So that's kind of interesting. And of course, he was known for his generosity and kindness. It is, is very... it is an interesting choice to make. Maybe it's because you're giving a gift. Wink. <laughs> <laughs> Wink. He apparently also, one of his miracles, or not really a miracle, but like one of the things he did to achieve sainthood was uh, saving women who were sold into slavery or prostitution by their father by providing them with a dowry so that they could be married. So it looks like he was a feminist. <laughs> For the time. We stand. We stand a feminist. So Julia was assisted by a young woman named uh, Gionima Spana, who recruited others in Rome and who had knowledge of the city and its people in order to kind of connect to the social network. I'm sorry. The way that you were like, she has connections in the social network, and I'm thinking they're selling these little vials of poison. I immediately thought, oh, this is the first MLM. Oh my god, you get like a, a letter slipped under your door. It's like, hey girl! Hey, girl. Don't you hate I that husband of yours? perfect product for you! Don't you want to become independent? Control your future? Be your own boss. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just, I was like, in this image of like, hey girly boss! Hey girly boss! <laughs> anyway... Gionima was the wealthy daughter of Niccolo Spano and the stepdaughter, or the daughter, I think it's stepdaughter, there, there was one source that said daughter, I don't think that's right, and the stepdaughter 
of Julia Manjardi. Oh. Oh. So once again, the family business continues with um, stepmother and stepdaughter, Julia and Gionima. I also think it's interesting because I was just thinking, like, how do you get to be a step-parent when you can't divorce? And then I was like, oh, right, because you murdered your other husband and remarried. Yeah, he, um, Julia was the second husband of Nicolos Bano. Hmm. I imagine the first husband left in a very normal and natural way on mutually agreed terms. Well, I believe that... Amicable poisoning. I believe that um, Nicolos Bano was her first husband, but she was the second wife of him. Um... And I believe that the first wife had a very fine Oh, but, time. you know, as we're saying that, uh, Geronimo's father did die. Um, <laughs> and oh, Julian no. a real estate How investor. How could this have come to be? He was <laughs> in such great health at the wedding. <laughs> it also, we say that it also wasn't uncommon for people to just randomly die during the time period, which is why poisonings often weren't super questioned, because... Disease was everywhere. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking earlier about how the Black Plague was 300 years ago, but that did not mean the Black Death was gone. It just meant, like, it wasn't a plague anymore. Or you could have died from one of the millions of poisons that are just in your everyday life because it's the 1650s and you don't know what's poison and what's not, and you put lead on your face because you thought it would help your acne. Something like that. There's no Bath and Body Works sparkly hand sanitizer. (laughs) It smells really good. It's lead, but it smells like mango sunrise. After Gionima's father died, Julia married a real estate investor named Cesare Ranchetti in 1624. Ranchetti, during the time of marriage, spent the family into the ground, which meant that Gionima needed to marry at the age of 14 in 1629. <laughs> She married. That's horrible, but all I can imagine is like the every time this man acts a fool, just like a bottle slowly rises from her <laughs> hand in the background. She's like, "Don't mess with me." And then she's like, "Not yet, not yet. Hold back, hold back." Fourteen. I like to imagine that the two of them had like a really close relationship as like stepdaughter and stepmother, but also like business associates. I have to imagine they would like make puns. Like, they'd be like, oh, you want a little something in your drink? I don't know. I can't think of a pun now, but I imagine they're making, like, inside jokes the whole time of, like, oh, he's not looking very good. Oh, you know how this that weather's been so cold lately. You know, it's just not good. And just, I don't know. I can't think of a good joke. I'm not, in, I'm not in on it. But, like, you know, they're just in the background, like side-eyeing each other every mm-hmm. time he mentions his health at all, and they're like, mm-hmm. Gionima married a man named Nicolo Chiazzi. I don't know if I'm selling, saying these last names right. Big disclaimer, I don't know if I'm saying any of these names right. I tried to look up pronunciations. Not all of them I could find, so we're going for it. He was a grain speculator who also spent frivolously and was also a cheat. Well... Sounds like a great guy. Mm, Real cat. He catch. did have status, though, which helped bring Gionima into aristocratic circles. Niccolo evidently did not live with her after 1640, just as a note, and then left Rome to escape creditors in 1655. So, interesting relationship they had there. Um, Gionima was a professional astrologer in herbal medicine distributor on top of her work as um, part of this poison egg ring. Girly, get it. Get it, girly boss. Like, honestly, though, she's just like, you know those people who have crystals and they do herbalism and they charge their moon water? She's just living that witchy life. Others who were recruited include Giovanna de Grandis, who was formerly a laundress, and Maria Spinola, who had been married four times and had been in this cycle of poverty. Maria was a so close friend. Both, sorry, were these mostly women who were lower class who were part of this poisoning ring? Honestly, from what I read about, I think so. I think Gionima was the only one that had close ties. 
that we know of into kind of the upper echelon, they did have the people I'm going to talk about. There's like five or six main characters that we're going to talk about who we know were kind of the main parts of this poisoning ring, but there are up to like 40 other people that were like somehow associated. So I really don't. Damn, I thought sure. there were like six people in this poisoning ring. There's like 40? Are we sure this wasn't an MLS? <laughs> They're all tight, though. These women keep secrets until it became really obvious that obvi- that they were all poisoning there. But when I say 40, I can also say that could be also clients as well. That could include other people. And to be honest, a lot of how the word got around to people is that people who had used them as clients would tell trusted friends. They wouldn't go around telling anyone, but trusted friends who were in the situation would recommend them to Julia and um, Jeronia Metz. Trusting, do you have to be with a friend that you're like, hey girl, I know you've been having trouble with that boy, that husband, and I know you're not a snitch, so I'm gonna put you in contact with some people. But Maria had been a close friend of Gionima and was recruited into the business in 1650. Good for and her. later records, just to come back, so those two were considered poison makers. But from the records, it said that Giovanna had learned personally from Julia herself, which was a big thing. And Giovanna seems to have been kind of in like this tight knit group with both um, Julia and Gionima. They also brought Laura Crispolti and Graziosa Farina into the fold. They acted as saleswomen and as natives of Rome. They were able to bring in kind of local clientele. Graziosa was the local business. As... I wonder if the plants they use to poison people are locally sourced. It's organic. <laughs> Graziosa was described as a beggar who had recruited her clients through the churches she begged at. There was little to describe Laura prior to her joining, but later on there was two accused women who had been sold poison from Laura. Um, Anna Maria Conti and Camila Cab- It's almost Cabello. I can't. Camila Cabello. Oh my god. <laughs> but it's Capella. Um, described her as ruthless and wicked. And that she had many clients. So I'm kind of standing. I know. I'm having trouble not saying good for her after every statement you say. <laughs> what a girl boss. I know. It's really hard hearing about strong, empowered women in a time when they are not, and not wanting to root for them. But before we get too much further into all of this, let's talk about the poison itself. Aquatofana, the poison at the center of all of this, was first recorded to be used in 1632, and that was with Francesca Lasarda and Tofania Diadamo after they had discovered to have poisoned their victims. Aquatofana is a combination of mostly arsenic, lead, and possibly belladonna. I mean, yeah, that'll fucking do it, won't it? That'll fucking do it. <laughs> Just give them bleach. It is an ideal poison because it is tasteless and colorless, and it can be easily combined with water or wine without detection. The poison is also slow-acting, and the symptoms are close to other common ailments, making it easy to hide. A first small dose causes flu-like symptoms. A second causes aches, vomiting, and diarrhea, and the final dose is what seals the deal. During this time period, it was not uncommon for people to kind of inexplicably fall ill or suddenly die. So there was very little need for people to look closely at these cases. I'm honestly impressed that they caught these people or like figured out this ring because like that's really impressive. And they didn't have much technology. Mm -hmm. They did have a lot more uh, knowledge just in common knowledge of herbalism than we do today. Like nowadays we rely a lot more on medical people to tell us that certain compounds do certain things but like people back then were kind of more aware of like these plants will do this thing because like you couldn't go to the cvs and get like an ibuprofen maybe you could get something from the doctor if they were there but like that's on you babe you can't just go to the plague doctor cvs and say hey i got these symptoms i need 12 milligrams of aspirin or whatever that's the other thing, too, is the dosaging. Like, you had to figure that all out by yourself. 
Another random fact that will tell you how popular Aquatofana in this story is, is that Mozart, while dying in 1791, said that he thought he had been poisoned with Aquatofana. That was later debunked, but it kind of tells you that this story had staying power for over a hundred years. Snap, snap. Also imagine being important enough to think that someone would try to kill you. I mean, he is Mozart. (laughs) I know. Imagine that, though. Imagine being, like, Mozart on your deathbed. Like, I can't die of natural causes. Someone has to be ending me. So, back to our main story. There are a few suspected victims of this ring that we know about. And one case I'd like to talk about is Francesco Chasey, who was one of the most powerful women, or powerful men, sorry, (laughs) caught up in this operation. Chasey was the Duke of Sherry. His father had been a scientist and, you know, just a friend of Galileo. Real casual. Just a friend of, oh, you know, (laughs) Galileo. You might not have heard of him. Just, you know, flex. The Duke was married to Maria Adobrandini, a member of a powerful and influential noble clan herself before marriage. In fact, she was even more well-connected than the Duke himself. Good for she was, her. She was 13 years old at the time of their marriage, and at a minimum of 30 years younger than her husband. Oh, God. It's a 40-year-old man. I hate this. It was a 13-year-old. They got married in 1648. Chasey died in June 1657, suddenly, and after a while, his wife, Maria, had become a person of interest. She would have been around 22 years old at the time of his death. According to future testimony by Giovanna de Grandis, Maria had fallen in love with Francesco Maria Centinelli, a count and also a rake. If you don't know what a rake is, it's basically just a fuckboy. Listen, girly, we've all been through the fuckboy phase. Maybe don't poison your husband over it. Poison your husband for you, not for the rake, for you. The Count's poetry that he had written for her marks that their relationship had been going on for months prior to the Duke's death. Maria heard about the poisoning ring through um, Father Girolamo. A fucking priest told her about a poison ring? <laughs> the clergy's in on this, guys. I mean, with that and the St. Nicholas on the bottles, are we sure this just wasn't, like, a sanctioned way for women to get out of their marriage? <laughs> like, if the clergy is like, yeah, he's no good for you, go talk to these women, they'll set you right, and then we'll talk next Sunday. Father Girolamo had had a hand in the poisoning ring himself by supplying the women with the arsenic used to create the poison. I'm just saying, a feminist. Now, like... <laughs> Giovanna was contacted by the priest and had been hesitant to take on this case because she was worried about the power of the Roman nobility. Fair enough. Maria herself was also worried that her husband could vomit up the poison and then suspicion would be on her. Father Girolamo, 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 I keep saying it differently, we're going to move on, was the one to push this plot into motion, calming both the women's fears, emphasizing how inconspicuous the poison was, and since the Duke's food passed through so many hands, it was unlikely that either of them would be suspected. So the plan went forward with Giovanna giving the poison uh, in that, you know, mana of St. Nicholas bottle to the priest, who then gave it to one of Berea's trusted servants, who was also a female. Hey, girly. Hey, bestie. I'm gonna need you to pick up some for me. Hey, Les. Soon after the Duke died, and for a while, there was no suspicions falling on his wife and no autopsy was performed. Her family, evidently, like, knowing something about Maria's affair, confined her to prevent her from marrying Francesco, which would have been extremely scandalous, not only because of the implication of, like, a short timeline, but also it would meant that she was marrying down in the social hierarchy. Can't just let a girl have a W. Maria was only suspected once the poisoning ring was arrested and Giovanna revealed the details of the plot. Dan. And bef- and we're going to talk about kind of how the group was discovered, but I do want to say that a lot of the notes of these different plots and things that happened 
come from Giovanna. It seemed like she was the one who kind of gave up the most information. Why? Do we know why? Depending, again, the story varies, but the version that I believe has uh, Giovanna being arrested first and discovered first. And then she was held the longest and tortured, of course, because uh. all of them were tortured after caught. Um, and started naming names and spilling everything that happened. That's so I believe that's probably why, because she was the one there the longest. Some of these other women, though, like, kept their mouths shut, even through torture, which is insane. I'm sad now. I was really snap, snap, Kirbying these girl bosses. And now I'm like, oh, no. They didn't get their girl boss era ending. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the different stories of how this shakes out. So the first major deviance is the fate of Julia Tofana. In one version of the story, she lives until she is caught and found guilty. In this version, during the early 1650s, a client of Julia's had second thoughts. Up to this point, her clients were fiercely protected of her and the group. They were powerless, abused women who had been given the chance to escape their situation. And so they were ever grateful. The clients only ever disclosed Julia's information to trusted women in the same situations that they themselves had been in. This is what allowed the business to operate underground, undiscovered for almost 30 years between 1620s, 30s to the 1650s. But as mentioned before, one of these clients, the woman had gotten as far as putting the poison in her husband's soup, but stopped him before he ate it. Her husband forced the truth out of her and handed her over to authorities. The client confessed that she had gotten the poison from Julia Tofana. Apparently, Julia somehow had gotten word that they were coming for her and she went to the church for sanctuary. She was granted it, but a rumor about her poisoning the church water led to the public to take action, storming the church, ripping her out, and handing her over to authorities. I don't think she did that. I think somebody just made that up. I don't think she would have a reason to do that. Yeah, seems like it would be harmful to her. Yeah. And yeah. She's, I know my girlie is too smart for that. It was in their custody that she was tortured extensively until she confessed to over 600 poisonings. That makes me wonder if there really were that many poisonings or if they thought there were more poisonings than what she admitted to initially. And because we know that torture's not really the best way to get an honest confession out of a person. So part of me wonders if that number is inaccurate due to the means that were used to garner it. But also at the same time, it sounds like she had a lot of people like pretty much sponsoring this. So it's I totally possible as well. Yeah. I'm thinking like even if she had if she was doing this for like again, like 30 years, if she had one client a week, that racks up. That's true. And I'm just saying, she didn't poison any of those people. She just sold them perfectly illegal substances put together in a particular way. That's a horrible way to look at it. That's not how it works, but technically speaking, she was just a poison maker, not a poisoner. In 1659, she was executed alongside her accomplices in Camp de Fleury, or Field of Flowers, this was a popular execution spot that had been left over open as like a field. And then it was kind of paved over into a square. But, you know, very classic to have like a huge viewing area. That sounds like a wedding venue, like a field of flowers. That sounds like a wedding venue. And, you know, the weather was just so nice and everybody was able to come out. It was really great. Supposedly, very dramatically, Julia's dead body had been thrown over the wall of the church that she seeked sanctuary in. And then it was up to, like, the clergy members to, like, clean that up. That's what I'm saying. Like, there is absolutely no reason to do that other than to be petty as hell as a government, as an executioner. She's already definitely, I guess, to, in a way, punish the clergy for kind of helping her and being like, you're fucking next. If this shit keeps going. I do also want to say that I don't think this is the true version of the story. 
based on what I've seen from other sources, this feels like a very dramatized retelling formed through like decades and centuries of like gossip and awe. That does sound like something that came out of a bad game of gossip telephone also. Like, do I doubt that it's possible? No, I truly believe in humanity's ability to be that level of theatric, but I also don't doubt humanity's storytelling ability. In what I believe to be the more accurate story, Julia Tafana dies in 1651 in her sleep without being suspected of any crime up to that point. From there, um, Gionima Tafana takes over as a leader of the group. This makes more sense because a lot of the stories that are told and these next three versions that I'm going to tell talk about it as Gionima being the leader. So that makes more sense to me. As I said before, um, sources mention that Juanima had married into high society and was able to navigate those aristocratic circles. And then her accomplice, Giovanna de Grandis, would navigate the kind of lower classes. Juanima was able to have her finger on the pulse of what aristocratic women's lives and marriages were like and who might be interested in their services. Most say that she was kind of focused on the business aspect of the poisoning ring and like raking in money. However, there are some people that say that she offered poisons to poor women for free. Aw, a girly boss. She's raked, getting that bag, but she doesn't forget charity. She doesn't. She supports women. I'm having a real hard time not rooting for these women. Murder is bad, and I'm not saying murder is not bad, but I'm also saying... That domestic violence and rape is also really bad. And if you have no other means of escape, I mean, murder's not good, but I can understand how you get there. And, like, if you're trapped in that situation, you change. Like, you are, there's the trauma. You can sometimes, I'm not saying good words, I'm just making hand gestures. I thought you glitched for a second. No, it's just me being myself. I can't think of the word, but basically, like, self-defense exists for a reason. Same with a battered woman syndrome? Not syndrome, but, like, there's a battered woman defense. Like, if you've been in a domestic situation long enough, violent situation long enough, and you eventually fight back, and it maybe ends up lethal, like, people are like, yeah, that's kind of fair. From here, there are three versions of how Gironi Maspana and the rest of the ring were caught. In the first version, the group simply became too confident and popular. They were assisting in so many murders in such a short time that Pope Alexander VII noted that there was a large number of women confessing to their priests that they had poisoned their husbands, and even the public was noting an uptick of widows in the area. Authorities would be had like become suspicious at that point and then would trace the operation back to the group. I mean, it, it sounds like in most of the stories you've said so far... Like, they were basically known to everybody but the poisonese. Like, the clergy knew about it. All the women knew about it. Sounds like a lot of servants knew about it, too. So it sounds like everybody knew, except y'all. In the second version, in a similar fashion, uh, Gionima was caught when one of the women confessed to her priest and that she had planned to kill her husband. This got to the authorities, and at the price of this woman's immunity she sold out the entire operation this version comes from um pietro forza palavinci who was a cardinal of pope alexander VII and had been personally known to do the interrogations or be involved in the interrogations of Gironima's group which gives it some kind of credence it's not as fleshed out as the final one i'm going to tell you but those were the theories so in the third version, it suggests that Giovanna de Grandis was caught by the authorities three or more times due to suspicious activities. And she had been let go each time, but then on one unlucky arrest, she was caught with the poison. She tried to pass it off as some kind of cosmetic potion, but no one was really believing her at that point. The authorities let her go thinking that she had accomplices and that she would unknowingly lead them to her. So the authorities set up an operation themselves. For this, they set a trap using a woman by the name of Signora Loretta, Loretti, Signora Loretti, and used the fake name Marchesa Romanini for the mission. 
she was moved into a mansion in a fashionable district, which gave her cover credibility. From there, Manchessa started seeking out Giovanna for her services as an astrologer, because Giovanna also did that. <laughs> These women had many covers. <laughs> what does an astrologer do? Is that like just doing somebody's birth chart? I mean, people really believed in that kind of stuff back then. And you know what else? You know what else? I was thinking about this because I remember reading about it. It has absolutely nothing to do with this case. But, like, I read once that during the Renaissance era is where tarot cards were believed to have originated. So they were probably doing tarot card readings, too. These witchy girls, poisoning, herbalism, tarot card readings, birth charts, like... I'm kind of here for the the aesthetic. During these sessions, sessions during these sessions, Marchesa would tell Giovanna about her terrible marriage, and eventually a deal was made—a large sum of money for a bottle of Aquatofana. The exchange point was set, and the authorities swooped in. They confiscated the bottle, tested it on stray animals, which breaks my heart to see if it was, in fact, Aquatofana. Once the animals died, it was confirmed, and Giovanna was held at Papal Prison in Torre di Nona starting on January 31st, 1659, and he, she made her confession the next day. I kind of also just want to mention, uh, Marchesa is not a name, it's a title. So her name is not Marchesa, it's the Marchesa, like a marquee. Got it. Got it. I was thinking, I was like, that sounds a little too much like a Marquess than to be a name. I was thinking that for a minute, too. And then I was like, I don't have time to look it up. <laughs> we don't have time. Don't have time for this. Uh, only have time to think about the poor little straight. And a Marchessa makes sense because that's a level of aristocracy, but it's like pretty low down. So like if you hadn't happened to have heard about one particular Marchessa, like it's not mm-hmm. unheard of. Sorry. Is Marquise down in the... I thought it was There's, Duke, Marquise, Earl, Viscount, Baron. So that's pretty high up. Yeah, I guess. But it's not like it's a Duke. <laughs> it's it's, it's a not like it's a Duke. <laughs> <laughs> From romance novels I've read, it seems like Dukes are pretty important. I would think the guy below a Duke is also still pretty important. Yeah, but that's like knowing a random Congress member. Like, yeah, they're pretty high up there, but I don't know all of them by name. Anyway, past that. <laughs> Giovanna, once captured, started naming names. And I'm going to go through some of these. Graziosa Farina was named by Giovanna on February 7th and had been tortured after her capture. She confessed the next day and then became cooperative, naming several people, including Elena Gabrielli Cassana, Angela Armalina, Elena Ferry, and then most importantly, Laura Consbolti, a close colleague that we mentioned before, who she later then testified against. Laura, once captured, was described as strong and did not confess for a long time, although I do not know the exact length of time she held out. Anything longer than somebody twisting your arm for more than 30 seconds is incredible to me. Like, have you ever gotten your arm in that, like, lock and you're just like, ow, 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 I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. Considering that they made a note about how long it was, I imagine it could have been a couple of weeks. That sounds right. I don't know how long torture sessions lasted back in the day. Maria Spinola, who was identified by Giovanna, was an important witness when it came to the guilt of Gironima. Gironima, the stepdaughter for anyone who is trying to get these names together. <laughs> I get it. <laughs> Maria was not only close to her in the operation, being one of the only ones to interact with her directly rather than through Giovanna, which is what most people did, like uh, Graziosa and or Laura both, I think, talked through Giovanna to get to Gironima. But Maria was also a close friend of Gironima, which is makes this kind of sad. Gionima Spana had been arrested on February 2nd. She was interrogated by Lieutenant Governor Stefano Bracci. Some of the things noted is that Juanima was self-assured, intelligent, and confident. She denied accusations, but also willingly answered questions, but never revealed anything incriminating. She was more resilient as other prisoners, not confessing until June 29th. 
when she signed her statement of guilt, which is what they needed in order to go through with the execution. Following this confession, on July 6, 1659, Geronimo Spana, Giovanna de Grandis, Maria Spinola, Laura Crispolti, and Graziosa Farina were hanged at the Camp di Flori. This execution drew an unusually large crowd. 46 of their clients were also imprisoned for life. These clients were most likely from the lower class as high class clients would have likely been banished or detained in covenants if they were punished. And that is the conclusion of that final version, which I feel I kind of sprinkled in there with some explanations, things that came from the limited records that we do have. And this guy, um, Craig Monson, had wrote The Black Widows of the Eternal City. Um, recently in 2020, he published that. And so some snippets I've gotten from there is what I included in this final version. And it feels more fleshed out to me. Yeah, I was going to say, I think either the second one or the third one are closer to the truth. I don't think either of them has the full story. I think that's just how it is going to be for something that happened over 400 years ago. I don't think the uh, throwing her body over the wall of the church happened. I mean, it could have. I wouldn't put it past the 1650s of it all. But I, I feel like that's just a, something that somebody said that was yeah, just dramatic. Yeah. I feel like the third version... I mean, it could just be that these other two versions don't have a lot of details to them, which is possible. This third version has, like, an actual operation that leads to, like, the full capture of someone, which makes it seem more legitimate to me again same i could also see the second one happening where someone confessed and then they spilled who given them the poison and let them back but that actually is the part that makes it less believable to me because that for me makes it sound like it's not that i don't believe they were smart enough to start up an investigation with like a sting operation but it's like it sounds to me like somebody was trying to spin, spin this like, oh yeah, we were on top of it. We definitely didn't let her get away with that for months. We were just setting up our sting operation. But that could also just be me, like, projecting onto the police of the 1650s in Italy. <laughs> but also, like, this seems like the kind of thing that this, that, and the other person knows about. Everybody knows about, and then just the wrong person who's not in on it gets confessed takes this woman's confession and instead of being like oh you want to kill your husband doesn't it everybody girly he went hey pope we should do something about this and that's the hard thing about this or maybe you got to the point where it was too much and the the clergy could no longer support it they were like look you've gone too far here there's too many dead bodies that's the hard thing about this is how old it is so this is not the best storytelling I have ever done because there's so many twists and turns and it's very hard to keep anything straight. For a while, I was reading about it and no one had mentioned um, Geonima being at all interrelated with Julia in any way. And then, boom, she's the stepdaughter. I was like, oh my God, what's happening? That's also why I don't think the 1620 birth date for Julia makes sense because then her being the stepmother of Geonima doesn't line up at all. And even then, that, like, the stepdaughter thing could totally be a story that, like, somebody made up, like, the legend of this poisoning ring that, like, people knew about, but it was in the shadows, and then people were like, oh, I heard that she was this other famous woman's stepdaughter, and that she raised her and taught her everything she knew. Like, it could go either way. I like found family tropes. We do like a found family trope, and we do love a girl boss moment. Sorry, that wasn't really related. I just had to say, I like found family trips. We do love this situation of these women coming together. I think it's incredible that they, during this time where they had very little power, came together, kind of reclaimed some of it for themselves. Being a boss lady during that time, too. Do not condemn the killing of 600 men. That is estimated. That is incredibly tragic for a lot of people. Because you never know exactly oh, condone. what you meant the condone. live situation is. You did say condemn. You use condemn instead of condone, so you're like, we don't condemn the murder of 600 <laughs> men. 
<laughs> Sorry. Freudian slip there, Annalise. My tongue can't say any more words anymore, as evident by all these Italian names that I've been trying so hard to pronounce and failing miserably. Italian part. Bestie, when I told you I had to look up, like, 30 names, and none of them had pronunciations, I had to look for, like, adjacent names and then, like, squish them together. Hope it's right. And a lot of them are 400 years old, so a lot of people probably don't have those names anymore. For sure. For sure. And we're just taking it on, like, somebody's authority that that's how they're pronounced, even if we have a pronunciation. Yeah, exactly. But... Could you imagine you went back in time and somebody was like, actually, it's Jonathan? Jonathan? And when I tell you Julia, in this case scenario, it's not spelled how you think Julia is going to be spelled. It is G-I. Oh, it's the G-U-I, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. G-I-U. That's a classic Italian goof. It's like, mm, That is fun. a classic Italian. But either way, that is the story of Julia Tofana. Giondima Spano and the whole Spana. I can't even say the names anymore. But anyway, that's their story of their whole poisoning ring. I wouldn't call this necessarily disappointing. It's it's a story of legend and it's very old and it's a very interesting story. We are not gonna. I guess what's disappointing is we don't have a clear story. <laughs> yeah, but uh, like I think the part of the reason that they got away they, for, they did not get away, but they got away for quite a while and i think part of the reason they did that the is because got everyone was locked in not telling said they probably did not write shit down so on the one hand that kept them from getting caught but on the other hand that means we have very little record of it and it's just it's kind of wild because it's just one of those things that damn girlies murder's bad but good for you also we have interesting emotions and interesting feelings about this case scenario. And you know what? That's just where we're going to leave it. <laughs> yeah, that's just, that's the thing. Like, keep, when you put people who are people, not property, in a position like that, you know, it's not going to go well. People are going to figure out a way to survive. And sometimes that means killing the threat to them. And that's just how it is. Exactly. But... Again, I highly recommend Mike Dash and his article on this at mikedashhistory.com. It's super interesting. Lots of great information there and sources that you can go and do some more digging. I wasn't able to get a hand on The Black Widows of the Eternal City from Craig Monson, but that is supposed to be like the best current reference for this story. So highly recommend you guys check those out. Do some digging on this as on your own let us know in the comments too if you found information that i did not find because there's a lot of information out there that i did not have the time to get so let us know your theories and your thought of what is the actual version of this story and we'll see you next time i imagine that our table right now has a bunch of those little like saint nicholas bottles <laughs> just scattered on it just take a quick because it's not a very disappointing episode i'm gonna say so you just take yourself a quick shot of St. Nicholas endorsed Belladonna arsenic and lead. Knock that back. We'll see you in Get two weeks. Get a week. cold, make it really upsetting for the next few days. <laughs> and make sure and remember this is a shot you can only take three times. And we'll see you guys next time. Or maybe not if you take that shot, but bye. See ya. Bye.
this is where Giulio Tapano's services come into play. 